Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Some of you were looking at me and thinking, uh, Dr. Aiken's got a lot better looking this past week, hasn't he? The, uh, Dr. Aiken couldn't be here tonight, and so he called me up last minute and asked if I'd be willing to come and preach tonight. It was uh, a bit of a setup. He kind of called me up and said, you know, are you willing to, to preach in the, in the church? And I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm happy to go and, and preach or teach. And I was thinking, I got some great material on Terry Schiavo and some things we could talk about. And he said, well, uh, since you want to go... Um, you're certainly open then to teaching First Peter, right? And so I said, well, First Peter sounds fine, Mr. President, and so, so here I am with Dr. Aiken's material. The, um, the book of First Peter is, is where we are. We are working our way through the New Testament. We are up to the uh, section of Scripture referred to as the general epistles. And First Peter is the third of the eight general epistles that we'll go through. First Peter is really a very interesting book to, to study. Probably one of my, my favorite books, actually, in Scripture to, to read and study. And so, I'm, in a sense, I'm really happy to be here and to be going through First Peter, um, of all the books that I could, I could be talking about. Um, several months ago, I had a student that came to my office, and um, he was having a real bad, uh, real bad day, real bad week, to tell you the truth. His, uh, his church uh, was full of bad deacons that were trying to fire him, and all kinds of things were falling apart in his life. And um, he said, you know, uh, Dave, um, being a pastor would be a great job if it wasn't for the people. <laughs> and uh, he, he didn't really mean that. He was just ha- having a bad day. But um, along those same lines, uh, being a Christian, being a follower of Christ, uh, would be a real great job if it wasn't for ourselves, wouldn't it? You know, we constantly struggle with ourselves, struggle with our thoughts, uh, struggle with our flesh, struggle with the challenge to be obedient to what he's called us to do. And it, with that sort of as a background, um, and with the topic of suffering being the particular issue that Peter addresses, these are the, the undercurrents, the theme behind the entire book of First Peter. Peter's trying to write to some, some followers of Christ who are having really uh, a real bad day, uh, a real bad week, a real bad year, if you will, and they're trying to struggle to overcome all the pressures that come with obedience, that come with being faithful in the midst of harsh persecutions. And that's really the topic that Peter is, is dealing with in this entire book. Well, turn to page three of Dr. Aiken's outline. We'll, we'll start there and then work our way backwards, sort of. The, um, the author of the book of First Peter is the apostle Peter, Simon Peter, and he declares that explicitly in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. He does mention towards the end of the book that he is writing with the help of Salvanius, uh, which is also known as uh, the man Silas in the book of Acts. Silas is just a, a shorthand version of the longer name Salvanius, and we, we know that this was, was likely the same, uh, same man. Of course, Peter was the brother of Andrew. You've read before in John chapter 1 of Andrew. When Andrew found the Lord, the first thing that Andrew did was he went and found his brother, Simon Peter, and said, Peter, we have found the Messiah. 
And Andrew brought Peter to, to Jesus, and Jesus um, welcomed Peter into the fold, and he became one of his twelve disciples. He is the son of Jonah. Several times in Scripture we see Peter referred to as Simon Peter, um, bar Jonah. And bar Jonah, the word bar means son of in Hebrew. And so he is Simon Peter, the son of Jonah. Matthew 16, verse 17. Of course, as you are aware, Peter was a fisherman by trade from the small town there in the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee called Bethsaida. The name Peter does mean rock, and I guess you have read that before. The, um, there's that account there in, in several of the Gospels where uh, Christ actually gives Simon his new name. Uh, he says, Simon, you shall be called Peter, and the word Peter actually means rock. And um, Christ giving a name, and of course, to the Jews, uh, names meant a lot more than, than they mean to us today. We kind of just name our kids whatever we happen to like. Uh, but in the Hebrew context, in the Jewish culture, uh, they would name uh, their children oftentimes um, weeks, months, years uh, after their birth. And oftentimes parents would change their children's name. And certainly those in authority would have the authority to change the name of their followers. And when Peter, rather when Jesus um, gave Simon the new name Peter, which means rock, uh, he was recognizing uh, a character trait, an aspect that was evident in Peter's life. And as you have read um, about Peter, um, one fact about, about Simon Peter was he was, uh, I guess you could say, he was not always right, but he was never in doubt, was he? He, uh, he was a rock in regard to opinions. Always had one and always, always thought he was right. And really, of, of all the, um, the men in the Bible, of course, if someone asked you, well, who do you want to be? And Well, I want to be Jesus. Well, that's, that sounds kind of uh, pious and self-centered. And so if Jesus is, is, is not a, um, an option of, of who you want to be, I think Peter would be real close to the top of my list of the guys I'd want to be. Because uh, Peter was always there. He was always there with, with an opinion, with a confession, um, not afraid to speak his mind, not afraid to stand up for Christ either at times, but as well um, not afraid to, to fall other times and, and to confess. I guess my... Um, my friends uh, sort of would characterize me as a, as a quiet guy. Um, I'm the kind of guy that, that doesn't usually speak much unless I have, have something to say. Well, Peter was the exact opposite. Uh, he, was, he was always there, always with an opinion. You um, recall that account there in, the, um, it's in all, all four Gospels uh, when Peter and James and John and Christ go up to the Mount of Transfiguration, right? And, and Jesus reveals himself to them in his full glory. And, and what does Peter say? And it's, it's, it's good to be here, Jesus, and how about we build a, a tent? <laughs> What's that all about, Peter? The, how about we build a tent? I mean, that's just shy of, um, of Adam there in Genesis 2 when he first sees Eve. And he breaks out with bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I mean, it's like, do you come here often? The, I mean, what else could you say and, and, and sound, um, sound more ineloquent? Well, Peter, um, let's, let's build a tent. It's great to be here. Or uh, Peter there at the Last Supper when Christ is fairly obviously uh, demonstrating his humility and washing feet. And it doesn't even go to Peter first. It goes to John first and talks about what he's doing and goes to Peter to wash Peter's feet. And what does Peter say? Uh, well, never, you'll never wash, wash my feet, Jesus. And Christ says, well, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no place in the kingdom. And Peter gets it right. Ah, well, then if that's the case, well, then wash my, my head as well. Right? Always, always there to speak out, always there to give his opinion. This is Simon Peter, the author of the book of 
First Peter. Perhaps you're interested, interested, interested to know <coughs> excuse me, that there is more information about Peter um, in the Gospels than any person except for Jesus. As well as in the book of Acts, there's more information about Peter uh, than even about Paul. The first 12 books of Acts are really the, um, the Acts of the Apostle Peter. And then starting in chapter 13 through chapter 28, we have really the Acts of the Apostle Paul. And so a lot of information about Peter in our Bibles. And a very, very interesting man to, to study. Paragraph 2, Salvanius, is almost certainly the name Salvanius or Silas, who served with Paul on a second missionary journey there in Acts 15.40. And you've read that before. You recall that uh, Paul and Barnabas had been on the first missionary journey, had been out planting churches, having a very successful time. And they had kind of went back to home base to take inventory of their ministry and got ready for a second journey. And Barnabas says, hey, Paul, how about we take, uh, take John Mark with us? And, of course, John Mark was his cousin. But you recall back from the first journey that John Mark had bailed out uh, on the first missionary journey when, when the going got tough. The, uh, the tough got going. And so Paul says, hey, you know, there's no way that we're taking John Mark with us. Well, there was a bit of a fight there in Acts 15, kind of one of the first uh, church fights, first church disagreements. You know, we fight about the color of the carpet, and they were fighting about, you know, missionary trips. Well, Paul and Barnabas uh, parted company, Barnabas taking his cousin John Mark with him, and Paul choosing Silas as his traveling companion who went with him on the second, third, and fourth missionary journeys. Same man, this Silas, who obviously got around, because here he is with the Apostle Peter ministering later on in his life. The phrase, Sylvanius, may indicate that he did not simply write down Peter's words, but put in his own words what Peter expressed to him. And you see there in 1 Peter 5:12, Peter doesn't just say that he's here with me, but rather Peter gives Silas a really a spot of authority, a position of authority in this letter. He says there in verse 12, 1 Peter 5, 12, By Silvanius, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. And what Peter says here is, essentially, um, I spoke it, and Silvanius or Silas is the one that wrote it down. And... Um, I guess it was last week or the week before, Dr. Aiken was talking about the, um, the group of, of letters that we have in Scripture known as the, the books of the anti-legomena. Big word there for you. The um, anti-legomena means doubted books. And there are several books in Scripture that are doubted. They were doubted by some in the early church as to whether or not they were real, authentic epistles that were canonical. But First Peter is not one of those books. Second uh, Peter is. But First Peter has never been doubted. But one of the reasons why Second Peter is one of the most doubted books in the entire Bible, uh, doubted by, by some but not by, not by most, is because the style of First Peter is really different from the style of Second Peter. But if you factor into the equation that it was Silvanius, it was Silas who was writing First Peter, well then we would expect First Peter to be different than Second Peter, because Peter himself likely wrote Second Peter which explains it being a more rough, a kind of rugged style. But First Peter is written in a very polished, eloquent, uh, classical Greek, and it's, uh, which we would expect, Silas being a Greek, we would expect him to be a very good writer. And so likely Peter was speaking, he was dictating, and Silas was his, 
secretary who was writing down and polishing the words that Peter spoke to him. And so the author there and the secretary, Silas, writing it. Number two, recipients. Peter wrote for Christians in a wide area in the five Roman provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. First Peter 1, 1, he says that. These recipients are referred to as pilgrims or sojourners. Actually, here in the, the New King James that I've got, it refers to them as those of the dispersion. And a very interesting word here that has led to a little bit of kind of controversy regarding the recipients of the letter of 1 Peter, uh, to the pilgrims of the, of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Asia and Bithynia. The, uh, that word there, dispersion, is almost always used in Scripture to refer to Jews who uh, are, are dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. And the word almost always means that. But that creates a problem for us here in 1 Peter because it seems fairly evident from Peter's epistle that he wasn't writing to Jews. Rather, he was writing to Gentile converts. For example, if you look in 1 Peter 4, verse 3, Peter reminds his recipients, he says, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, in lusts, in drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And so Peter is reminding his recipients, hey, this is what you were like. Uh, you were following Gentile ways and, and, and doing all these, these crude sins. Well, an Orthodox Jew would never do these things. And so who is it that, that Peter is actually writing to here in his letter? And most scholars believe that by using the word dispersion, he does not, he's not referring to the usual scattered Jews, but rather he's referring to scattered Christians who are scattered throughout the Roman Empire, and as we'll see, there's a very good reason why they were scattered. The, um, incidentally, those, provi- those provinces there, those five provinces, uh, Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, these are the five Roman provinces of modern-day Turkey. And so if you think of that big peninsula that jets out there um, in the nor- northern part of the, the sea there, just above Israel, this is that whole landmass uh, that, that he's writing to, which makes perfect sense because that's where Paul went and planted churches. And so most Christians at this time are probably living in that area. And so Peter writes to the Christians in that entire area, the entire kind of known Christian world, uh, to encourage them with this letter. Well, the date of First Peter is roughly between AD 63 and 64. It could have been a, a, a tad bit later than that, perhaps as late as AD 66, but certainly no later than that. And so Peter is, is writing to these Christians, and the, um, if we consider the date and we consider the historical um, events that were going on, Peter's use of the word diaspora, dispersion, makes perfect sense. Because we know historically what was going on about this time is the emperor during this time is Emperor Nero. And while Emperor Nero started out as a fairly good emperor, by this point in his reign, certainly by AD 64, and 65, and certainly thereafter, uh, Nero was essentially a madman. Um, Nero was the guy who was capturing Christians, uh, soaking them in tar for 24 hours, putting them on on, um, on posts, and um, uh, 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 burning them. I, I mean, uh, torching them. Yeah, that's what I'm looking for. Thank you. Torching, torching them as streetlights. And so the Christians wore the streetlights in Rome, and Nero used them as streetlights to light up 
his orgies that, that he would have and his, at the palace. And so, I mean, not a kind man at all. And, as, as, and, and that was just the, you know, at first he was doing that. And as we go further on with Nero's reign, um, Nero is the one who started feeding human beings to animals um, in, in the great theater there. And it was, it was Christians that he was feeding to the lions and whatnot. And Peter talks about Satan roaming about like a roaring lion. And it wasn't just a metaphor. Now, this is what Christians actually were experiencing. And so Nero was, was persecuting Christians very, very heavily. The reason for all this persecution was not just that Nero was a madman, but um, about the year AD 64, actually it was the summer of AD 64, um, Nero, uh, likely it was Nero, he burned the entire city of Rome. And Nero had a, um, a real desire to build, uh, was a great builder, uh, built some of, the, some of the greatest monuments there in Rome. Uh, but by this point in his reign, he was out of space. Uh, there was nowhere else to build in Rome. And so to make room, Nero burned the entire city down, uh, all the people's houses, uh, killing uh, hundreds, if not thousands of people. Well, those who survived were obviously very upset with Nero. And Nero, realizing that his time was up, if he didn't have a way to pass the, the buck of blame, Nero blamed the Christians. And so this is why he started to torture Christians and to torch the Christians and to feed them to lions. And the more he did this, the more the people were satisfied, and the more the church was dispersed. And so we know historically Christians were dispersed during this time. They had been set out and set forth from Rome and were scattered throughout the entire empire. And so it makes perfect sense, given that background, to think that what Peter is probably doing here with this letter is he's writing to people who are dealing with the problem of suffering, who are scattered throughout the entire Roman Empire, and Peter as the senior apostle, is writing to encourage them in the midst of their trials. And so the date there, A.D. 63 or 64, or slightly thereafter. Uh, Dr. Aiken also writes here that um, under Nero's hand, according to ancient traditions, Peter himself also eventually suffered martyrdom. And, of course, in John 21, verse 18, Peter told, um, I mean, rather, Jesus told Peter that you, like me, will likewise um, suffer a unique death. And according to tradition, Peter's death happened like this. Uh, shortly after he wrote the, the epistle of Second Peter, uh, he was captured by the authorities, was tortured by, um, uh, by Rome. Uh, he, his, his wife and Peter was married. Um, you recall back from the Gospels that one of the first miracles Christ did was he healed Peter's mother-in-law. Uh, incidentally, uh, one of the only miracles that Christ ever did without being asked to, to perform it. And so I hope Peter liked his mother-in-law because uh, Jesus he, uh, healed her there for him. And uh, so Peter was married, obviously. And we read in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us that Peter uh, travels uh, with his wife, with his spouse. So Peter was married. And according to, to tradition, after Peter wrote Second Peter, he was captured, he was tortured, he was forced to watch his wife uh, be crucified. Uh, according to tradition, they forced Peter to stand at the foot of her cross uh, for the entire 20 hours that she was crucified, to stand there and watch her die a slow death as a Christian being crucified. And then when she died, um, they attempted to put Peter up on the very same cross, but he felt so unworthy to be crucified in the same manner that Jesus was, that he asked to, to be crucified upside down. And we have several different traditions in the early church um, probably enough that it's probably a reliable true story that Peter indeed was crucified upside down um, just because he felt so unworthy to be killed in the same way that Christ was. And so Peter himself indeed likely was probably killed by, by Nero.
<coughs> excuse me, the place of writing. In First uh, Peter 5.13, Peter seems to indicate Babylon uh, as his location where he was writing. And as with the, um, in the first few verses, the identity of the recipients, who is the dispersion, uh, so the location of Peter's writing has proven, a, uh, has proven to be no small amount of controversy among scholars. He says here in 1 Peter 5.13, She who is in Babylon, elects together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, and this is probably John Mark, my son. Greet one another with a holy kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. And so it seems that Peter uh, identifies his place of writing as Babylon. And that's kind of thrown scholars for a loop for several reasons. Um, First of all, contextually, um, most have believed that Peter was likely in Rome, not Babylon. uh, Because Rome was where the persecution was taking place. Rome was where the Christians were scattered or dispersed from. And early church tradition places Peter uh, in Rome at a very early date. And so many have thought, well, now Peter was, was in, in Rome, not Babylon. But if you, if you think about the way that um, Babylon is used by the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, you know, oftentimes John will, will refer to Rome as Babylon, as a metaphor for uh, the immoral city of Rome used Babylon. And so... It's possible that Peter could be speaking metaphorically here, saying, I'm in Babylon, but I'm actually in Rome. Um, that, that's certainly possible. I, th- I think that's probably likely. Uh, Dr. Aiken's view is that view, that when Peter says Babylon, he's really speaking metaphorically of Rome. He's not actually in Babylon. But other scholars have said, well, no, he was actually probably in Babylon. Because Peter, like the rest of um, the Christians there in Rome, was dispersed, was uh, scattered out across the empire. And we know that Babylon, um, there on the far eastern edge of the Roman Empire, uh, was a a hotbed of of Jewish life. It had been ever since the Old Testament times. There were were many Jews there. And it seems very likely that Peter, being an apostle to the Jews, would have went, when he was cast out of Rome, would have went to Babylon. I mean, it was obviously a long travel, but still could have got there over several months' time and went there to minister. And perhaps he actually was in Babylon, uh, ministering with Silas, who also was probably scattered with him, with John Mark, who was scattered from Rome. And there they were together, ministering to the Jews in Babylon. And that's where he wrote the, the letter from. Later on, he traveled back to Rome, which is a possibility. And many scholars believe that. Uh, Paige Patterson, for example, uh, holds that that is, is the case, that, uh, that Peter was actually writing from actual Babylon over there in Mesopotamia, on the Euphrates River, which is a possibility. Well, what do I think? Well, when Paige Patterson was here, I went with actual Babylon. <laughs> Under Dan Yakin, I go with Rome. So the the lesson there is, if you don't know the answer, just go with who's ever in power, right? And um, and so we'll say he was actually in, in real Rome because that's what Dr. Aiken would want you to to hear. The the theme here of Peter's letter, uh, First Peter, it says First Peter, while addressing many issues, focuses on the theme of hope and eventual glory in the midst of suffering. While unbelievers cannot accept or understand this paradox, believers, because they have received a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, can face fiery trials, which they indeed were facing fiery trials, being burned or torched themselves. And Christ provides both the model and the inspiration for responding to every form of suffering. Well, 
just a, um, a brief word here. I, I'm not going to preach Dr. Aiken's sermon to you there on 1 Peter 1.13. I think that that would be out of bounds for me to take his, his outline and preach it to you. But I, I will look at, uh, at page 5 and, uh, and walk with you through the book of 1 Peter because there are some really good lessons here that we can, we can learn in regard to how to deal, um, how to approach the issue of suffering. Now, I don't know about you, but um, you know, they say that, uh, that as, all, as all men really, really want uh, is their mothers. You know, when we're sick, we still want mommy, and we expect our wives to, t- to treat us like our mothers did. Well, true or false, who knows? But I, I can tell you personally, when I'm suffering, I, I really do want some type of comfort. Now, I'm not thinking about mom necessarily, but if, if I'm having a bad day, I want somebody to pat me on the back and say, it's going to be okay, don't worry, uh, here, take a nap, um, hey, tomorrow's going to be a better day, whatever. And that's kind of my default, my default mindset. How to deal with suffering is, is by, you know, by encouragement, you know, by a pat on the back, um, and by it's, it's going to be okay, uh, give me a hug, something like that. Well, Peter's approach here to suffering is not quite that approach. He, um, again, historically, he's writing to Christians um, who have probably lost loved ones in a very violent fashion, uh, Christians who have been scattered, who have had to leave jobs, leave homes, uh, leave everything that they've ever known, and go to distant parts of the empire um, to keep quiet about their faith because of fear of persecution. And these are people that are really having, as I said, a bad day, a bad week, a bad year. But Peter starts in 1 Peter chapter 1 not with a, a word of comfort, as we would usually define comfort, but in 1 Peter 1, 1 through 1 Peter 2.10, what Peter really talks about is don't forget who you are. Don't forget who you are, and don't forget whose you are. And in 1 Peter, the whole first chapter, Peter goes through this, this discourse about don't forget that you were bought with the blood of Christ. Don't forget that you are a follower of Jesus. Don't forget that there's a high calling on your life, and he goes through the whole the whole chapter talking about that. He, he ends First Peter chapter one, saying, "Don't forget that eventually we're going to be with Jesus in heaven." And so, it's all these persecuted Christians who are suffering. And Peter's first word to them is, "Hey, don't forget your followers of Christ." Well, interesting tactic there. Well, then moving on to the second section of the book, chapters two and three. After encouraging those who are being persecuted not to forget that they were followers of Christ, Peter enters into this discourse on submission. And the very first group that he encourages them to be submissive to in 1 Peter 2.11 and following, actually it's 1 Peter 2.13 before he really gets into it, he says this, he says, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake whether to the king as supreme or to governors or to those who are sent by him for punishment of evildoers for the praise of those who do good. Now, who was it that, were, that was causing their suffering? It was the king, the emperor. It was the rulers. And so you have these, these beaten uh, Christians who are in mental, emotional, physical suffering. Peter's first word is, buck up. Uh, hey, your, your followers are Christ. Uh, I mean, don't forget whose you are. Second of all, hey, be submissive, and primarily to those who are persecuting you. Is that what you want to hear? I mean, in my mind, I mean, the picture is, you know, it's a, 
it's two boxers, and one boxer has been, you know, been hit with a left hook, and he's staggering on his way down. And as he's going down, the boxer comes up and gives him another jab to the to the ribs. That's kind of what Peter does here. I mean, they're suffering; they they need help. And from a human standpoint, he kind of kicks them when they're down. Uh, submit, not only to the rulers who are persecuting you, but also you you slaves. Um, many Christian slaves were converted. Uh, be submissive to your servants. Husbands and wives, in chapter 3, be submissive to each other, wives especially to your husbands. And then in the end of chapter 3, um, everybody be submissive to Christ. And so just from a logical standpoint, you're thinking, Peter, what in the world are you doing? You have these, these people who are suffering, suffering like we've never suffered before. They've lost everything. They've lost jobs. They've lost family. They've lost their dignity. They've lost their homes. They're scattered. They have nothing. And Peter says, don't forget your Christians and submit essentially to everybody. Well, what's, what's Peter really getting at? What's he doing? What's, his, what's the method to the madness here as far as helping those who are suffering? Well, 1 Peter 4.1 is where it all comes together. Where Peter says in 1 Peter 4.1, he says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. See, this is the key to human suffering. The key to human suffering is not looking for an easy way out. The key to human suffering is not crying uncle and getting the physical pain to stop. No, the key to human suffering, regardless of your circumstances, is right here in 1 Peter 4.1. It's to put on the mind of Christ. Because if you can adopt the mind of Christ, if you can get yourself mentally to the place where you rightfully acknowledge I've got no rights. You know, if, if I'm a Christian, if I have salvation, and that's all I've ever been promised. The, uh, and anything else on top of that, including the next breath, is just frosting on the cake. It's gravy. And when you view life in that perspective, when you view life realizing that you have no rights, like Christ, who Philippians 2 tells, and Paul tells us in Philippians 2, Christ didn't consider it robbery to set aside his divinity for a time, not that he wasn't God anymore, but to step into the flesh. All right, well, that, that, that was a big setting aside of rights. Right? And not only that, but to come and put on flesh and to be killed for sins that you never committed. Well, Christ got over his rights, didn't he? He became nothing for the sake of the kingdom. And Peter's saying that. He's saying, you know, what you, what you need in the midst of your suffering is not a hug. It's not a pep talk. It's not psychological counseling. What you need is to realize really who you are and what you have and to get over yourself. Because when you get over yourself, life doesn't quite look so bad. And that's Peter's word there to the followers there in First Peter 4. Well, he continues here in this last section of, of the epistle, talking about suffering and wonderful, wonderful discourse on suffering and what it really is. The First um, Peter 4, verse 12, he really gets into it here. He says, Beloved, don't think it strange concerning the fiery trials which try you, as though some strange thing were happening to you. That's what he's saying. He's saying, why are you upset with this persecution? Why would you be surprised that you might have to give your life for Christ? After all, he gave his life for you. 
And so why does this surprise you? Don't be surprised by that. But rather rejoice, verse 13, to the extent that you partake in Christ's sufferings. Is that your mindset? I tell you, I'm not there. I'm not there. When I have a bad day, man, I, I start thinking all about me. All about me. Lord, why is this happening to me? Lord, I, you know, I, I deserve more than this. But Peter says, no, you deserve nothing. Don't complain, but rather rejoice that you are suffering in a small way, just like Christ suffered and gave it all for you. That even when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And he goes on, and then verse 19, this this tremendous statement, which I can't even get my mind around. He says, therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. You know, I teach ethics over at the seminary, very practical, practical doctrine, practical issues. And I get students all the time that come to my office. Dr. Jones, I, I'm just, you know, I just want to be in the center of God's will. I want to find out what God's will is for my life. I want to be obedient uh, and know, know, know who it is I'm supposed to marry, what job to take, what program to enroll in, and I, I want to be in God's will. Well, if I was a betting man, and I'm not, but if I was, I would bet my bottom dollar that no student that's ever come to my office inquiring about the will of God has ever thought for a moment that God's will for his life may be to suffer persecution. So Peter says here, it may be the will of God that you suffer persecution. Because through suffering, indeed, God can be glorified. And you think about Peter's message here to those who were indeed suffering, who were persecuted. And I think we're, we're kind of forced to take an inventory of our own lives and ask us and ask, ask ourselves, are, are we there? Are we there? And are we willing to suffer? Are we willing to, to go like these two Wycliffe translators? that went and gave it all, um, and not complain about it. Rather, thinking that our suffering, our persecution, perhaps is God's will for our life, and indeed it's identifying us with the Master. Well, our time's gone. Let me give you just, um, I want to give you just a small list here to jot down. Um, maybe stick this in the back of your Bible. I, I, um, I deal with the topic of suffering a lot. And in the back of my Bible, I've got a small little list that I pull out. When someone comes to you, and this will happen to you if, if you're a Christian for, for long, someone's going to come to you in the midst of suffering, um, when they're having a bad day, when something bad's happened, when they lost a child, when they lost a job. And they're going to come to you and say, what is this going on? What's this suffering all about? Well, these, these are five things that I found very helpful to, to talk with people about when they, they come and they begin to question the, the almost God's holiness, God's righteousness. How could God let me suffer? Five things to think about um, when questions like this arise. Number one is the issue of human freedom. The issue of human freedom. You know, we all want, um, want free will when it's beneficial for us. You know, when you freely chose to uh, 
indulged in that sin, you never you weren't asking yourself, uh, God, why are you unjust? Why are you why are you allowing me to have this freedom to to sin and to enjoy sin for a season? And God never seems unjust when human freedom leads to our, our own pleasure. But the very concept of human freedom presupposes um, it allows for the possibility of bad things to happen. I mean, if we're free moral agents, if we can make free choices, well, then other people can make free choices too. And somebody may make a choice that results in your suffering. Somebody may freely choose to drink too much alcohol, get behind the wheel, and kill your spouse. Right? Well, it's just human freedom. It's part of the world that we're in. But human freedom also allows us to freely choose Christ. And what a better world it is that we're in, that we have human freedom, which entails suffering sometimes. But it does allow us to to choose Christ. It allows us to choose to repent. I mean, God could have made us all robots, but that would be no fun at all, would it? The um, human freedom is part of this entire suffering question. And there's a good side to it, there's a bad side to it, and you have to take the whole thing together to have any of it. And so human freedom is the first thing to think about. Number two is human sin. Human sin. Regardless of how much you've suffered, I guarantee you that you've not suffered as much as you deserve. Right? You, Because um, anything shy of hell is, is bonus. Right? And so whenever you're thinking about, about suffering, about the bad day you're having, just as Peter says, thank God that you're identifying yourself with Christ through suffering, but also thank God that he's not let you suffer really like you deserve to suffer. And so human sin has to be factored into the equation of, of suffering. Number three is the value of suffering. The value of suffering. If we had time to each give a testimony here tonight, we could probably all testify to the fact that it's been in, in the, the seasons of suffering in your life when you've grown the most, hasn't it been? Because when we suffer we're forced to abandon ourselves. We're forced to look to God, to look to Christ. When everything's going well, well, then there's no reason to go to Christ. We hope that we do, but oftentimes we don't. But when you suffer, we're forced to look to Christ, and that's when we grow. Hebrews 5.8 says this, and I, I, I have no idea what this verse means. I, I can't explain it. But Hebrews 5.8 says that Jesus Christ learned obedience through his sufferings. That's Hebrews 5.8. I have no idea how the Son of God could learn obedience through suffering because he was God. But the writer of Hebrews tells us that. And so there is value in suffering. And so when these questions come up, number three, think about the value of suffering and the spiritual growth that can and, and does occur. Number four, don't forget the fact that God suffered. Don't forget that God suffered, went to the cross, for your sins, suffered the ultimate penalty for you. And indeed, he can identify with you and whatever suffering you're undergoing. And so dwell upon that, think upon that when suffering occurs. And then number five, lastly, don't forget God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty, we're told in Romans 8, that it's within his power to work all things together for good. Your suffering, even your sin, does not derail God and his plans. He's not surprised by any bad things that come into your life. He is sovereign. He's still in control. He's holding all the strings. And he's working together all things for your good and for his glory. And so 
these five things, human freedom, human sin, the value of suffering, the fact that God suffered and God's sovereignty, five things to think about just when suffering comes into your life, when someone comes to you with questions about suffering. Um, I'm not saying you, you break out these five things, read them off, and just leave the person to think about them. But I'm saying, you know, when suffering comes, these are five areas um, of Scripture just to dwell upon. Well, our time's gone, so we'll end there for this evening. Thanks for bearing with me. Dr. Aiken will we'll be back next week for Second Peter. And let me close this in prayer. Father, we're thankful to have been uh, together tonight. We're thankful for First Peter. I'm thankful, Lord, for his challenging message, Lord, to those who are suffering. Lord, I, I'm thankful for, Lord, even the, um, just the example, Lord, of the early Christians, Lord, that experienced suffering and trials, Lord, unlike the kind that we can even fathom, let alone experience. And I'm so thankful, Lord, that they indeed were faithful, that indeed your church did go on. And, Lord, and through the process of passing the gospel on one to another, the gospel came to us. And, Lord, help us, Lord, just to stay faithful in the midst of suffering. Help us to stay faithful in the midst of blessings. And help us, Lord, to keep you and your glory at the center of our lives. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.